Good morning. Good to see you all this morning. It got warm outside all of a sudden. It's almost like we, uh, almost like we're it's summer. And uh, I am very grateful for a an innovator and entrepreneur named Willis Carrier, who invented the air conditioner and made Florida possible. <laughs> uh, I have, before I get started, I want to um, hand these out. These are just blank pieces of paper, well, almost blank. Um, it's got my email address on here, and it says questions for Timothy Terrell's Sunday school class. So um, if you want to write something down and hand it to me afterward today or at the beginning um, next Sunday, next Sunday will be my last, um, and I will try to get through these as, as much as I can. Thank you. Um, and so uh, I'd, I'd like to, to take some extended time to answer questions that you might have. Um, about the kinds of things I'm, uh, that I've been talking about for the last several weeks. I, I'm afraid that I've raised more questions than provided answers. And I guess that's good in a way. It gets people thinking about um, these things. Maybe for, uh, and, and I also hope to have some uh, recommended reading. I've got some resources that um, could cover some of these things in more detail from a Christian perspective. And I'll make that available to you next week as well for those that, um, for whatever reason, still want to learn more about this and, and, uh, and would like to have some things to, to look at. But let's open with prayer. Father, we thank you that you have given us this day to worship. We pray that you will help us to uh, read your word faithfully and to learn from it and to apply what we have learned to the world around us, that we may be more faithful in service to you and the building of your kingdom. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So I had promised, I think, last Sunday that I was going to spend some time talking about Marxism today. And so I'm going to do that and, and spend some time as well looking at how Christians have tried to make communism compatible with Christianity or rather the other way around and and some of the ways that scripture I think has been twisted to um, to fit uh, uh, communist ideas and we, we hear this, this term tossed around a lot, communism, and, and maybe especially lately. Um, and we associate that most commonly with uh, Karl Marx. Um, Marx lived from 1818 to 1883. He was born in Prussia. Uh, I think now that is part of Poland. He was the son of middle-class parents. And his most famous work was a book written in German, Das Kapital, um, which appeared, at least part of it appeared in 1867. And two more volumes of that followed after Marx had died, produced in part by a friend of Marx, uh, Friedrich Engels, who helped or is a co-author on the Communist Manifesto. Um, Marx actually wrote more about capitalism than he wrote about communism. He had critic, uh, critiques of, of capitalism. And his influences, I think, are interesting. One of them, ironically, was a person that some might regard as the patron saint of free market capitalism, Adam Smith. Uh, Smith was a Scottish moral philosopher, uh, grew up in a um, largely Presbyterian environment. Um, and Smith, interestingly, had some ideas that provided a seed for Marx. 
Uh, Smith said that in a primitive society, quote, the whole produce of labor belongs to the laborer. But Adam Smith, I mean, it sounds like Karl Marx, but that's Adam Smith. And as soon as some capital is accumulated, then the capitalist, which was not a term that Smith used, he used the term undertaker, um, someone who undertakes to do something, uh, then that person would begin to employ people and then sell their output and make a profit. And then they'd take that profit in return for the risk that, that they were incurring. In that case, then Smith said, not all of the outputs are going to belong to the worker, but might be shared with the owner of the capital, who's the employer. And so Smith never really made clear why this was helpful to the worker. It is helpful to the worker. We understand that, um, I think, today, some of us. Um, but it was not really made clear in Smith, and so Smith leaves the door open to people like Marx to come along later and say, well, the worker's just being exploited by the capital owners. Um, Smith didn't really understand the purpose of landlords. He didn't understand how they have a useful function. Uh, Marx would later come along and say, well, there's no purpose at all. Um, land should be owned by the state not by capitalists. Smith didn't talk much about the entrepreneur, didn't leave any room for that person, that very important person in his way of thinking about economics. And so even though it, we think of someone like Adam Smith and someone like Karl Marx as being on opposite ends of the spectrum, there were some unifying characteristics in them, and I would say a lot of this is because they were not paying close attention to what Scripture said. Neither one of them. And we see this even more clearly in a German philosopher that was another influence of Marx named Ludwig Feuerbach. Uh, Feuerbach uh, had a theory that he called atheist materialism. And Feuerbach thought that uh, religion was a projection of idealized human attributes onto some otherworldly being, which was then worshipped by humans. Religion was a crutch to make life tolerable. Feuerbach said further that it was a form of self-alienation. And if you know anything about Marx you've, or have read anything uh, by him, you know that he spends a lot of time talking about alienation. The worker is alienated from the product of his labor. Uh, so Marx drew from Feuerbach. He drew pieces from Smith. Uh, uh, Charles Darwin had an, at least an indirect influence on Marx as well. And so when we look at communism, you, I, I don't think we can really separate this from the anti-Christian underpinnings of it. Um, Marx believed that socialism was inevitable, that History was a march, slow march maybe, but a march toward an inevitable world in which workers would rise up, take back the uh, stolen products of their labor, and run society as they saw fit. He had this idea that he called the iron law of wages, which was that a worker's wages under capitalism would not be any greater than what was necessary to sustain his life for more work. And he had this Malthusian view. Thomas Malthus was a, um, uh, actually a very um, religious person in Britain who said that um, if the population increases, it's going to increase faster than our ability to feed it, and so people will starve. And once they starve and the population declines, it's going to start to rise again until the food supplies are no longer sufficient, and then they starve again. And so he had this idea that humanity was just going to end up in perpetual cycles of starvation. Um, 
And we still see this idea today in, in those that are opposed to population growth that think that we're just gonna overpop, the whole idea of overpopulation can be traced back to, I don't think there is such a thing, but that the whole idea of overpopulation can be traced back to people like Thomas Malthus. And Marx had a similar, similar view. Uh, by the way, uh, Malthus is the reason that economics is sometimes called the dismal science because it was a person named Thomas Carlyle who looked at what Malthus said. Malthus had written a lot about economics, and Carlyle looked at that and said, wow, that is a dismal science. <laughs> and uh, because of all the, the apparent inevitability of relentless cycles of starvation, um, which history has shown, if nothing else, that Malthus was dead wrong, uh, population of the world is much, much higher than what it was when, when Malthus was writing and we're eating far better, <laughs> um, well, more in, at least. <laughs> so I, I would argue better as well. So um, Marx is pulling from a lot of these kind of influences of his, of his society. His approach treats humans like animals. Uh, drawing from Mal Malthus, um, you know, animals think about little else besides getting food and reproducing. Humans have other objectives. Um, so we don't just think about getting food and reproducing. We're not just fruit flies that relentlessly reproduce until we exceed our, our ability to, to, uh, to, to survive. Anyway, so Marx is talking about this impoverishment of the workers that's brought, brought on by the capitalists who are taking the value of the workers' product and eventually the masses of unemployed workers would rise up and rebel against the bourgeois capitalists, take their wealth, distribute it amongst themselves. But this could only happen after capitalism has reached this higher state of, of development where the division between the worker class and the capitalist class has reached its peak. You can see why people in the 1930s confronted with the Great Depression we're looking at that and saying, this is it. This, this, this is the zenith of, this is the point where the worker will now rise up and we've got permanent unemployment because we've had a, a depression that started in 1929 and here it is 1938 and we're still in it and this is, this is it. And so you, you saw uh, people that were writing books like uh, The Grapes of Wrath, for example, that ends on this note where the oppressed worker finds the socialist organizer and, and is finally realizing that this is the path toward enlightenment and truth and prosperity, his, his socialist ideas. Um, I don't want to spend all, all of my time here just giving you this, this brief rundown on, on Marx. Um, but I would say that Marx viewed human society as perfectible um, through the direction of the state. So he believed the capitalist system, the market, is an uncoordinated mess. Nobody's organizing it, so how could it be organized? Um, Marx believed that economic activity required centralized control and that central control would eliminate the exploitation of the worker, would bring freedom, would bring um, enlightenment. All the factories would be directed by the workers, all the farms would be work directed by the workers, and all the capitalists would be sent off to the camps. So. Marx assumed workers are going to be virtuous. Where's the fallenness of humanity in this? Where's the fallenness of humanity? Where's the, where's the sin, the greed, the corruption of humanity when it comes to the state that's going to usher in this worker's paradise? You could almost see this as a kind of warped, post-millennialism on the part of Marx. We're headed toward, onward and upward into the light where the worker will eventually reach 
this heavenly realm, and we will no longer be oppressed. We'll, it's an Exodus story, if you will, out of slavery into the promised land. That said, of course, Marx was very much opposed to uh, religion, so this was a secularization of some of these ideas. He wanted to eliminate the system of private property. In the Communist Manifesto, you can see some of a, a distillation of some of these ideas. Um, if you've never read it, uh, I would recommend that you at least read the 10 points at the back. It's a short little book. Um, and you'd be familiar with some of the objectives, I think. Number 10, for example, free education for all children in public schools, abolition of children's factory labor in its present form, combination of education with industrial production. That, that, number 10 on the Communist Manifesto. So, we, so we, you know, you can see why people looked at that and said, oh, well, of course. You know, um, abolition of all right of inheritance. Maybe you never thought of inheritance taxes as being a communist idea, but Marx would have approved. Um, a heavy progressive or graduated income tax, number two on the list. So... Now, uh, parts, uh, Christians over time have, have sometimes looked at this and said, well, Marx went overboard on the secular atheist materialism thing, um, but workers are oppressed and maybe we can study and learn from Marx and some of his followers and maybe, maybe, maybe Christians need to, need to adopt at least the economic aspects of Marx's um, thinking. And so parts of the Bible have been misused, I would say, to imply that there should be something like a, a, a striving for equality or, or that justice has, uh, it requires something like socialism or communism. Um, and I'd, I'd urge a careful rethink of, of, of that. Um, by the way, uh, Stalin had spent a number of years in a Christian school uh, growing up, and then he went to seminary uh, for not a short period of time. Was, I think it's a couple of years at least. And uh, seminaries have been turning out communists ever since. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I don't think he went to St. Louis, but <laughs> anyway. So, um, let's think about some of the scriptures that you'll see Christian socialists using, misusing, to advocate for a kind of a Christianized, baptized socialism. And I, by the way, I know people are going to parse the difference between communism and socialism, and I'm not going to get into that, that distinction here. There are a lot of people who say, well, you know, we don't need to completely abolish private property. Um, I, I, would, I would say Christians have been doing this for centuries. You can go back to the 1500s, and you can find Protestant groups in Central Europe that tried to abolish private property and have a kind of a city or town scaled communism well, well before Marx, you know, centuries before Marx. Um, it is some of these groups that ended up being so oppressive that it was when, when uh, the people like Martin Luther would, would say, these people need to be wiped out. Um, and he, Luther did not mince words on this as he didn't on many things, but he, he thought these, these communists, he didn't call them communists, but these people that are abolishing private property, they're even going so far as to say that you don't have an uh, exclusive right to your spouse, 
anyone can come into your house if they want to. It's not, you know, we don't, we're not really going to have property. He took a very hard line on this and thought that the civil magistrate of the time had a duty to wipe these people off the map. Now, we can argue that maybe that wasn't the best approach to handling Christian communists, but it's, this predates Marx by a long extent. So let's think about um, the passage in Luke 18, which is often uh, referred to when Christians want to argue that the wealthy capitalists are exploiting the poor and in need of reform and perhaps that involves some kind of taxation of their wealth. Uh, a friend of mine, um, a libertarian economist named Robert Higgs, um, I've learned a lot from Higgs. He's, he's written a lot that I, that I would recommend, but he's made some errors. He wrote, enlisting proponents of communism, Higgs wrote, Jesus told his disciples to sell all that they owned and give the proceeds to the poor, end quote. Now let's read Luke 18, 18 through 30. The uh, rich ruler, sometimes called a rich young ruler, although I'm not sure where the young part came into this. Anyway, uh, and a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, honor your father and mother, and he said, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, if you, if you read this and, and pay attention, careful attention to it, you, you see that Jesus was not telling everyone to do this. He was telling this particular person to do this. As, as Cal Beisner has said, he was speaking to a particular man, the rich young ruler, this man had a particular problem, and Jesus prescribed a particular cure, one targeted directly at the problem. The prescription didn't apply to everyone. And in fact, in the very next chapter, in Luke 19, 1 through 10, we read the story of Jesus' encounter with Zacchaeus, who was the tax collector. Starting in verse 3, um, well, now I'll skip down to... Uh, verse 8. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Now this person, Zacchaeus, confessed his sin, signified his willingness to repent by repaying anyone he'd wronged and then giving massive amounts of his wealth to the poor. But Jesus did not respond by saying, uh, no, 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 you have to give it all to the poor. Um, this was not prescriptive of everyone that Jesus came across who had wealth. Jesus was not saying everyone who has wealth must dispense with it and, and give it to the poor. So there's a, a misinterpretation very common from what I think is a rather sloppy reading of, of Scripture. Another passage that has been used, and I've seen this perhaps more than, than 
any other, um, is in Acts 2 as a defense of a kind of Christianized communism. And we'll see again in, in Acts 4. Acts 2, we'll start in, in verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And then we see this again related in in chapter 4 starting in verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, so this sounds very much like that communist maxim from each according to his ability to each according to his need. I mean, that's what it sounds like. And if we, again, I think this is, this is a, a, a sloppy reading because if you look at the very next chapter, you see evidence that this, this is not what was intended. Uh, It was not the abolition of private property, and it was certainly not introducing the coercive power of the state to force these transfers from the rich to the poor. So we see in in chapter 5 the case of Ananias and Sapphira. But a man named Ananias, starting verse 1, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men arose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Okay, so what is it exactly that Ananias and Sapphira had done that was deserving of condemnation? It was not that they had wealth. It was not that they sold wealth or sold an asset and 
had the money. It was not that they even gave part of the money to the church instead of the whole. It was that they lied about it. That was what Peter said. Um, and Sapphira saying that the donated money is the full price of the land we sold was deception. It was elevating their own generosity above what it actually was. It was lying, trying perhaps to make themselves look good in front of the church, to say we had, we were, you know, we sold and gave just like uh, Barnabas in the previous chapter. We, we gave everything. No, you didn't. You didn't have to, and Peter made that very clear. You didn't have to give everything. You didn't have to give the land at all. It was your own before you sold it. The proceeds were yours after you sold it. The problem was you lied about it, and you lied about something very serious that was intended to turn the church into your own social ladder to make yourself great, to enhance your own reputation. Rather than really providing for the needs of the poor, you were using this as a way to make yourself look good. Jay Richards... Um, who wrote a, a, a book that I'm going to recommend um, in my list next week. Uh, he teaches at the Catholic University of America. He's a Roman Catholic. Uh, his book, Money, Greed, and God, is, I think, one of the best entry-level um, treatments of how Christians can view ideas about socialism. And he said, the communal life of the church in Jerusalem has never made the norm for all Christians everywhere. In fact, it's not even described as the norm for the Jerusalem church. What Acts is describing is an unusual moment in the life of the early church when the church was still relatively small. Also, many of the new Christians probably had come from a long distance to worship in Jerusalem at Pentecost. These new Christians would have had to return home soon after their conversion had it not been for the extreme measures taken by the newborn church to allow these Christians to stay and be properly trained in discipleship. Compared with modern nation states, the Jerusalem church was a small community banding together against an otherwise hostile culture. The circumstances were peculiar. For all we know, this communal stage lasted six months before the church got too large. Paul elsewhere told the Thessalonian Christians to, quote, earn their own living, end quote, and sternly warned that, quote, anyone unwilling to work should not eat, from 2 Thessalonians 3. So it's no surprise, Richard says, that the early communal life in Jerusalem was never held up as a model for the, how the entire church should order its life, let alone used to justify the state confiscating private property. Let me turn to an Old Testament example of this um, kind of misreading. Well, it's an Old Testament example that has been misread, to be more precise. I was, uh, um, a number of years ago, in a class for our economics majors that they all had to take, and one of the features of the class was that we brought in people from outside the economics department to give a talk, and because we believe that bringing in other disciplines can help us understand the world better. And so one of, the, one of the people we brought in was a person who used to teach in the religion department at Wofford. He's no longer there. Um, and he had been trained, I think, as an undergraduate in economics. So he knew something about economics, and he, he said he knew something about religion as well. So he talked about Amos. Uh, and he read several sections from this minor prophet. He read, for example, Amos 3, 15 through chapter 4, verse 1. 
I will strike the winter house along with the summer house, and the houses of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall come to an end, declares the Lord. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. And he took this to indicate that this is a condemnation of inequality of wealth. Uh, and maybe of, maybe of wealth in general, although I don't think he went that far. And he quoted from some other pieces of Amos to suggest that this was a condemnation of a market system of our capitalist um, society. Does God truly rebuke these wealthy, powerful people because they are wealthy or because they have more than others? Is that what Amos is saying? And in fact, there is no part of Amos that supports this. Instead, God is rebuking these people because of how they have obtained their wealth. Wealth is commonly regarded in Scripture as a blessing. But if you try to obtain that blessing through illicit means, if you try to gain it through fraud or theft or murder, that is what God hates. So in Amos chapter 1, look at the criticism of the Ammonites. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of the Ammonites and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they have ripped open pregnant women in Gilead that they might enlarge their border. They're trying to gain land, not by buying it, but by killing people and some of the most defenseless, defenseless people at that. They had committed horrific acts of violence to gain wealth. And then in Amos chapter 5, 11 and 12, Therefore, because you trample on the poor and you exact taxes of grain from him, you have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine, for I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe and turn aside the needy in the gate. So the, what's the accusation against these wealthy people? It's that they took taxes. They had corrupt courts. I mean, when it refers to turning aside the needy in the gate, the gateway was where the elders of the city would sit and they would have their, their, effectively their court there. You'd come to plead your case before the elders in the gate. But they were, they were corrupting justice. Ironically, then, this is a governmental activity, collecting taxes, having a court. Um, it's not a condemnation of unequal wealth. And then in Amos chapter 8, Four through six. Hear this, you who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, When will the new moon be over that we may sell grain? And the Sabbath that we may offer wheat for sale, that we may make the ephah small and the shekel great. Remember what we were saying a couple of weeks ago about the unjust weights and measures, where the if you if you make your your you know shekel your your pound weight. You make that heavier than it really should be, uh, then you're, you're uh, defrauding the people who think that they are uh, selling you a pound when actually they're selling you a pound and a half or something. An ephah. Um, an ephah was a measure of volume, like a bushel. Right. So you make the ephah small that you're selling make the weight that you're using to buy things from people um, uh, out, of, out of line with the norm as well. So you're basically cheating people to gain wealth is what you're doing. You're defrauding. It'd be like going to a gas pump and pumping what you think is a gallon, and the meter says it's a gallon, but it's actually uh, you know, three-quarters of a gallon or something. So that would be an equivalent to what they were doing. They were falsifying measurements. They're not, he's not condemning markets. He's not condemning 
wealth. He's condemning theft. And uh, gaining wealth through unjust means, which is a totally different thing from condemning inequality, which is, which is what some of these uh, uh, religious figures are, are trying to do. I'm going to skip over a bit here. I've got three hours worth of material here. So, <laughs> so um, let, let, me, let me say a few things about the problem with communism, to kind of wrap this back around to Karl Marx. And, and, and you, can, you can find, I picked on seminaries where I'm, there's doubtless plenty of people in seminaries who would teach a kind of a baptized Christianity, or a baptized socialism. Uh, but you can find this rampant in higher education, and, and it almost doesn't matter where you go to, go to school. Um, outside of a very small number of institutions that you go to, where you can go to, to, to college, uh, you're going to find people who are espousing this kind of thing. Um, maybe not as much in economics departments. Uh, there was a poll that was done which just looking at things kind of politically to try to see, well, what, what fraction of people in economics departments would say that they're Republicans and which ones would say, they're, how many would say they're Democrats and how many would say they're independents, and it was pretty much reflective of the American population as a whole. Um, among sociologists, 3% said they were Republican. 70-something percent said they were Democrat, uh, very lopsided. Uh, and you're, you're going to find you're going to find at whatever institution of higher education, and that includes Christian ones. You're going to find some of this stuff that's being that's being taught. And one of the things that I hear from Christian students is this: communism works great in theory; it just doesn't work very well in practice. And a kind of a corollary of that is, well, if we just had better people, more virtuous people in leadership, then it could work. If we just had, if we could just get the right people into political office, then we, we, could, we could start to rectify these injustices that, that Karl Marx talked about. So if people were sinless, could we have communism? If, if Adam had never sinned, and we get Cain and Abel and, you know, and so forth, and, and, and the fall had occurred later, or not at all, would we have been able to have, would, would they have had a communism in the Garden of Eden? Could that have, or the society that grew out of that? If we had not fallen to sin, could communism work? And a lot of people, Christians included, would say, well, yeah. I mean, the real problem with communism is you have these nasty people like Stalin, and uh, and, uh, and 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 Mao and 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 Pol Pot and and uh, Kim Jong the Third or whatever. And you've got all these people that are just they're just nasty people. And so, if you didn't have that, then you could have communism. And so, there's an implicit argument here that communism is really better. It's just that our human failings of sin are what keep us from getting there. Now, first of all, I would say there's a problem with sin that does in practice make a propertyless society uh, impossible. But there's another problem that I think is under, underestimated. We are not only fallen and prone to sin. We are also not omniscient. We don't know everything. And that's a problem too. If you are sinless, if you could be sinless, you would still be ignorant of a great many things. 
And that's another problem for a communist society. So my friend Sean Rittenauer, whom I've quoted from, I think I quoted from him the first week, uh, his textbook, Foundations of Economics, A Christian View, which I would recommend. It's a tome, so be aware of that before you dive into it. But excellent, excellent stuff. And Rittenauer says, he teaches at Grove City College, by the way, which if you have not made up your mind on college and for your kids or your kids haven't made up their minds and you, you, you don't mind uh, them living in Pennsylvania. Great, great institution. Anyway, Rittenauer says, without market prices of capital goods, there is no way for the central planner to compare the economic value of different materials and techniques that could be used to produce consumers' goods. Managers would be without the ability to calculate the expected profit or loss of various production projects. They would be left, as Ludwig von Mises put it, groping about in the dark. There is no way then for a central planner to rationally allocate resources, which is the main reason why one sees so much absolute waste and subsequent poverty in a socialist economy. So there are two problems with a communist regime. Number one, people are sinful, and you, if you give them a lot of coercive power, if you give them more than they should have, they're going to tend to abuse it. As Lord Acton once said, power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And you give people that much power, they're going, and, you can say, well, we need the temporary dictatorship of the proletariat in order to get to our promised land. And that's, it's going to fail. Because you put someone in that much, give someone that much power, and they're going to tend to abuse it. And they're going to do it in a way that is horrific. But the other problem, and the one that I don't think people really recognize, is the importance of acknowledging our own limited understanding of the world around us. How do we know that we shouldn't be making railroad tracks out of titanium instead of steel? It's too expensive. How did you know it was too expensive? Because the market told you. And the market is a way of, of taking advantage of the knowledge of billions of other people. If you think you don't need that knowledge, that you can make these decisions because you're so smart, or that a highly trained committee somewhere, let's call it the Politburo, that they could make that kind of decision for everyone else. You are ascribing to them the kind of characteristic that belongs only to God. And you are ignoring that limitation of human beings. So that's, that's a serious problem with, with um, not only the extreme versions of totalitarian communism like we've seen, we've seen with Soviet Union or North Korea or um, um, Cambodia or um, you know, take your pick, but it's also a problem that afflicts socialism light, communism light. If you say, well, we're not going all the way to North Korea with this idea that the state should have control over this and that and the other, we're just going part way. Because we do recognize that, that um, you know, there's inequality of wealth, and we need to rectify that in some way. So we're, we're not going to go all the way to you know, the Soviet Union or Mao or anything like that. We're just, we're just going to adopt the good parts of communism and uh, of Marx, and we're going to dispense with the bad parts like the gulags. And I, I would suggest that that is not adequately understanding what scripture says about your ignorance and your sin. Um, and that's, that's a real problem. 
we are we are we live in a society with a great deal of um, temptation toward ascribing to leadership in whatever sphere doesn't have to be the state in whatever sphere we tend to ascribe to that leadership sometimes greater ability or sinlessness or virtue than than we should uh, our institutions if they are biblical are going to acknowledge that sinfulness and that ignorance and they're going to account for it that's why in a presbyterian form of government you don't have a uh, uh, like you've seen some some churches with the great preacher who becomes effectively the dictator over all affairs of the church. In Presbyterian governance, you've got governance that is that comes from elders. You've got um, um, an outside body. You've got a presbytery that can monitor what's going on in an individual church and say, these are the standards, and we're going to hold you to these standards. So a biblical institution takes account of that, and that, that includes the state. I spend a lot, of my, a lot more of my time thinking about that than I do about church or family, but in, in, in biblical institutions, we take account of that. And the minute you start to say, well, we don't really have to worry too much about this you know, this person has so much education that we don't need to worry about whether they're going to be misallocating resources or uh, making mistakes because they're educated. Thomas Sowell, one of my favorite uh, authors, um, I don't think I've ever read anything by Sowell that I didn't like, but Sowell said, uh, socialism in general has a record of failure so blatant that only an intellectual could ignore or evade it. <laughs> and it's, it's true. The more, more education people get, the more they're able to kind of rationalize their own uh, abilities. And, and, you know, I've got a PhD. What does that mean? It means very little. I don't know very much. Um, and so we need, to, we need to be aware of that. I'm out of time. I, I hope that you will uh, use those pieces of paper that I passed around. If you didn't get one, I've got, I ran out of those, but I've got, um, I can give you my card with my email address on it. You can send me a list of questions. Uh, someone here who will remain nameless uh, has already sent me about a three-page list of questions, which I will not be able to get to next week. But um, I will do my best to, to, to use some time next week uh, to, um, to address those. Let's close with prayer. Father, we thank you that you've given us your word. We pray that we would use it faithfully to govern ourselves, our families, our churches, the um, civil realm in which we find ourselves. We pray that you would give us um, knowledge with humility to handle that knowledge. Help us to follow your word in all of these ways and to inquire after what you would have us do instead of the imaginations of men. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.